Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. We have had several really helpful conversations on past episodes about other religions and worldviews. We've talked about Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, and we recently just talked about Eastern religions, focusing primarily on Buddhism and Hinduism. A faith that you might be surprised that we haven't talked about yet is Islam. I would say for Christians in the Western world, Islam is increasingly becoming a more and more dominant worldview, and yet very often misunderstood. You know, Islam and Christianity seem to have a lot in common, and yet it's important to note that they diverge on a number of important doctrines and practices. In fact, um, Jim, I was telling you recently, I think I was, that I had a discussion in one of my seminary classes about whether Christians and Muslims believe in the same God, and certainly we kind of had a unique take on, on answering that question, but I was surprised to find how split the room was on the answer to that question. So I have been waiting for this conversation because as talking to a former seminary president and professor of theology, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. I would have loved to have been in that room. Oh, it was great. (laughs) Okay, but let's let's ease our way there. Let's start Uh, with something simple. What are some things about Islam that our listeners might find surprising? Yeah, the average Muslim is simply not who you may think they are because few faiths have been more stereotyped and caricatured more than Islam in the media. I mean, maybe secondly to Christians. Uh, the only one, um, for example, you may be surprised to know that the majority of Muslims are not even from the Arab world. Uh, in fact, the country with the largest population of Muslims is Indonesia. Uh, you may also be surprised to know that not every Muslim is a radical terrorist who wants to bomb the world to bits or kill every American uh, in sight. The truth is, if, if you know your history, it was during the during the, the Persian Gulf War, uh, Islamic nations such as Egypt and Syria and Saudi Arabia and others joined with Western nations to fight against Islamic Iraq and its invasion of Kuwait. And many, indeed, most Muslims around the world condemn the terrorist acts uh, against the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Um, most condemn the bombing of the Boston Marathon, for example, and the attacks that happened subsequently in Paris and every other terrorist attack by ISIS or another radicalized group. Uh, the condemnation of, of the Muslim world was fairly robust against Hamas and, and what they did in Israel. Um, in fact, even now, the, there's, it's an Islamic country that's trying to broker peace, uh, Qatar. Uh, So let's get all the Islamophobia out of the way and out of the door. What's true is that the average Muslim is that they are someone who is deeply and sincerely committed to Allah, which is the Arabic word for God. And the primary goal of the typical Muslim is to be submitted to Allah. In fact, that is what the word Islam means. It means obedience or surrender or submission to Allah. Uh, And the word Muslim simply means one who is surrendered or one who is submissive. So that's the terminology. Can you give us a bit of an overview of Islam, um, beginning maybe with its history? Well, it all began with the Prophet Muhammad uh, in the city of Mecca. 
Uh, in the year 610, when Muhammad was 40 years old, uh, he is said to have received his first revelation from the angel Gabriel. Uh, this was the first in a series of revelations that were eventually compiled in what we now know as the Quran. At first, Muhammad did not believe that these were uh, from God. He thought he'd been possessed by demons. His wife encouraged him that his visions were of divine origin. He, is not, he was not possessed and that he should teach what he had been shown. And so he did. The heart of the message was that there was one God uh, instead of many gods against the polytheism of the culture. The early Muslims were persecuted for this belief and eventually fled, had to flee the city of Mecca uh, for the city of Medina. Uh, the Islamic calendar actually begins when Muhammad himself had to flee Mecca in the year 622. Muhammad and his followers quickly established a, uh, themselves in Medina, and Muhammad was granted both religious and political control. By the year 630, Muhammad and his army had grown to such power and such influence that they were able to return to Mecca and take control without even a struggle. I mean, they didn't even put up a resistance because he was so overwhelming. Upon entering Mecca, Muhammad destroyed all of the idols and within one year was able to unify all of the tribes of the Arabian Peninsula under the religion of Islam. Uh, two years later, June 8th, 632, Muhammad died. After the death of Muhammad, um, Muslims faced an identity crisis. That's probably the best way to put it. And it was a division of who was going to lead. That was the heart of it. Essentially, the Islamic faith divided into two groups, what we now know as the Sunnis and the Shiite. Uh, the Sunnis believed that Muslims or that Muhammad's successor um, should be elected. The Shiites believed that the successor should come from Muhammad's bloodline. That's what divide. That's what people wonder why they're Sunnis, why they're Shiites, because they, it was all about how are we going, what, how are we going to succeed Muhammad? Um, the Sunnis got their way, at least in terms of the popular vote. They are now the largest branch of the Muslim faith of the nearly 2 billion Muslims in the world. 1.5 billion of them are Sunnis. So the vast majority, but the Shiites tend to get the most press because while they number only around 250, 300 million, they are very authority oriented. Uh, they believe that their religious leaders should exercise both religious and political power. So with a country like the Islamic Republic of Iran, which is a Shiite Muslim nation, uh, the president of Iran is subject to the supreme leader of Iran, who is the Grand Ayatollah. And while many of the fundamentalist or radical movements within Islam are made up of the Shiite Muslims who wish to bring revolution to areas that they feel are oppressed spiritually and politically by non-Muslim ideologies or governments, uh, even with that understanding, though, we, we can't paint too broad of a brush. For example, the Taliban that you hear so much about in Afghanistan, as well as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, uh, better known as ISIS, are not Shiite Muslims. They're Sunnis. And a lot of people don't realize that Hamas, Sunnis. And so Sunnis can be radicalized as much as Shiites. There's also a mystical third wing of Islam called uh, Sufism uh, and several minor Muslim sects that people may have heard of, such as the Druze Muslims in Lebanon uh, and in Syria, northern Israel, uh, the Nation of Islam in America. Uh, but it's the Sunnis and Shiites who dominate. And of those two, the world's Muslims are overwhelmingly Sunnis. Well, after the death of Muhammad, 
uh, Islam spread throughout the world in extraordinarily rapid fashion, largely due to military expansion or known as jihads. Within 12 years after Muhammad's death, this strategy resulted in the occupation of Egypt, Syria, Iraq. Uh, at that time, people were, um, they weren't forced to become Muslims. This is something that's also misunderstood. They weren't forced to become Muslims. And the people conquered were, for the most part, treated well. But the fact that the country was controlled by Muslims and ordered under Islamic law and that non-Muslims were clearly second-class citizens under that leadership led many to eventually feel forced to accept the faith. Gosh, that was in and of itself super helpful. Thank you. Um, but I mentioned earlier that Christian and Islam, they, they seem to have a lot in common. They, they believe in the Old Testament and the Bible, uh, or, I'm sorry, the Old Testament of the Bible and Jesus. Um, but of course, there's more to the story than that. So maybe let's start with like, what are the specific beliefs of Islam? There are five. They're known as the five um, doctrines. Um, the first and most important doctrine of Islam is that God is one and there is no other God but Allah and nothing and no one else is to be associated with God. The second belief is that there is a hierarchy of angels with the angel Gabriel at the very top of that hierarchy. According to Islam, everyone who has ever lived has two angels assigned to their lives one to record all of their good deeds and one to record all of their bad deeds. There are bad angels called jinn, J-I-N-N, from which we get our word genie. Uh, the third major belief is that God has sent a prophet to every nation to preach the message of there being only one God. And that includes uh, such biblical characters as Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon and Jonah and John the Baptist and yes, Jesus. Each was given a given for a particular age in Muslim thinking. Muhammad, however, is the last and the greatest of the prophets and the only prophet who is for all time. The fourth major Islamic belief is that four of the highest ranking prophets were given books of divine revelation or scriptures. Uh, and as you mentioned, there, this is where we also have some commonality. There, the, those four were Moses, who was given the first five books of the Bible, and then uh, David, who was given the Psalms. Then you have Jesus with the Gospels, and then Muhammad, who was given the Quran. But only the Quran, I mean, they're not on equal footing. Only the Quran is considered to have been preserved in an uncorrupted state and has existed eternally in Arabic in heaven. The final major belief is that the God of the Quran has declared that there will be a day when we will all stand before him in judgment. On that day, each person's deeds recorded by the two angels will be weighed in the balance. And those people who have their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds will be rewarded with paradise. Those who have their bad deeds outweigh their good deeds will be sent to hell. The only God knows which way our scales will tip. No one knows, can know at all. Uh, until that final day of judgment, whether or not they have been accepted by God, unless they have died in the cause of Allah. And we can talk about that if you want later. Mm, yes, I do. But first, okay, so that's that's really helpful in outlining the Islamic beliefs. But let's talk about practices now. What are some of the major practices of Islam? Yeah, along with the five beliefs are the five pillars uh, they're known as. Um, and the first of the five pillars has to do with reciting what's known as the Shahada. 
Uh, Shahada means to be witness. And when you recite it, you say, I bear witness that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. In fact, saying the Shahada with sincerity is all that it takes to become a Muslim. Um, the second principle is to pray. Uh, a Muslim is required to say 17 cycles of prayer each day. These cycles are usually spread out over five times of prayer throughout each day. You've got dawn, noon, uh, mid-afternoon, dusk, and then two hours after sunset. Uh, they have to wash themselves in a prescribed way before praying. And when they pray, they must face toward Mecca. Um, the only time when Muslims are expected to gather together is at noon on Fridays at their local mosque. The third principle, or practice, I'm sorry, is to engage in an annual fast. In remembrance of Muhammad receiving the Quran uh, during the ninth lunar month of Ramadan, Muslims are expected to fast during the daylight hours of that month. And that month changes from year to year, if you've ever followed this, because Muslims follow a lunar calendar. During the fast, they cannot eat, they cannot drink, they cannot smoke, and they cannot engage in sexual relations. The fourth practice, or pillar, is to give alms. Uh, Muslims are to give a certain percentage of their income to the poor and the needy. Uh, the final belief is to make the pilgrimage or known as the Hajj, H-A-J-J. Uh, every Muslim must make a trip to Mecca at least once during their lifetime, provided they are able to do so financially and physically. Once there, they are to visit the various sacred sites associated with the beginnings of the Islam faith and perform a number of personal rituals, including mass animal sacrifice. And even though limited by Saudi authorities uh, to 0.1% of the Muslim population from any given country, they limit how much can come from every country. More than 2 million gather on an annual basis. It is the world's largest attended religious event. <clears throat> now, some Muslims add <clears throat> excuse me, a sixth practice, which is the jihad or the holy war. In essence, the jihad is a personal war you wage against yourself in terms of submission. But it, it, it has to do with mental and spiritual striving. But it can also include actual war for the sake of the Islamic faith against others. And as I mentioned earlier or alluded to, if you die in the course of a jihad uh, called jihad of the sword or a holy war, that's the way and the only way you can go straight to paradise. This has given rise to a dark side of Islam, uh, condemned, let's be clear, by most Muslims. Uh, but that did lead to such events as 9-11 and continues to motivate terrorism and acts of violence and war around the globe. Well, now that you've laid out the basic beliefs and practices of Islam, let's compare them with Christianity. So what are the main tension points between Islam and Christianity? You know, it's interesting. You mentioned it earlier. I mean, there's there's so much commonality that some people do ask, and even in Christian circles, you know, is the father of Jesus the God of Muhammad? No. No. Um, but let's but let's let's back up a little bit before we get there. Based on what we've already covered, if you know much about the Christian faith, you can see that there is a lot of common ground between Christians and Muslims. Islam is a noble faith. Uh, with a deep belief in one God, high standards of morality and spiritual commitment and personal sacrifice. 
they share with Christians a belief in the sacredness of some of the same scriptures. They join with Christians in believing there will come a time of resurrection and judgment and then a heaven and a hell. But once you leave those areas, you come across very significant uh, differences that are worth noting. And they have to do with the nature of God, the nature of Jesus, the nature of salvation. Uh, that's foundational, those three. And then uh, as well, differing views on violence and also the city of Jerusalem. Now, let me let me talk about a little about all five of those. First, Christians agree with Muslims that there is one and only one God. But they maintain that the scriptures teach that that oneness is a composite unity uh, or what is commonly known as a trinity. In other words, that one God is made up of three persons, not three gods, but three persons who are one God, and that the nature of that one God is triune. Uh, there's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit, three persons who are one God. It's not like one plus one plus one equals three, but more how like one times one times one equals one. When the Bible records Jesus referring to God as his Father and to himself as his Son, he was, it wasn't talking about a physical connection as we would understand it. He was claiming to have a very special relationship with God that referred to his identity and his equality. To be the son of someone, in the sense that Jesus used the word, was to be of the same order uh, of that person, to have the same qualities of that person. And the people of his day understood this completely. There was no confusion at the time. For example, once Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath who had been sick for 38 years, he'd been disabled for 38 years, an invalid for 38 years. Um, and the religious leaders were upset uh, because healing was considered work and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. And when they confronted Jesus about that healing, Jesus said to them, um, listen, my father is always at work and, and, and I too am working. And they tried all the harder, scripture says, to then kill him, not only because you now he was breaking the Sabbath, but as John's gospel records, now he was even calling God his own father and John adds, thus making himself equal with God. So when Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one, Christians accept it. Muslims do not. Which leads to the second big distinction between uh, Islam and Christianity, which is the nature of Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus was a lot more than simply a prophet. As we just said, Christians believe he was God himself in human form, the second person of the Trinity, come to planet Earth to be the ultimate manifestation of God and his truth and to die for our sins on the cross. It's a lot more than a prophet. Uh, Muslims hold Jesus in extremely high regard, but they don't believe that Jesus was anything more than a prophet and not even the greatest prophet at that. That position belongs to Muhammad. Muslims believe that through the Quran, God broke into history through the written word, uh, not the word become flesh. Uh, Christians believe that through Jesus, God broke into human history through the word become flesh. Uh, to give the clearest, most comprehensive picture of himself possible. Which brings us to the third big distinction between Christianity and Islam, the nature of salvation. How do you get right with God? This is the question, the ultimate spiritual question. How do you get right with God? How, how are you saved? Do you even need to be saved? Christians believe that we do not earn our way to heaven or work our way to heaven, but that salvation is a gift that is offered to us through the death of Jesus on the cross. Muslims believe that you've got to earn it. You have got to work your way into heaven. Again, there's two angels, one perched on either shoulder, and they're riding down, counting up every good deed, every bad deed. And you better hope that that count comes out in your favor or you're screwed. Uh, there's no free gift flowing from Jesus or anybody else. 
Muslims believe that it would be, in fact, and this is interesting, Muslims believe that it would be an insult for one of God's prophets, even if he wasn't the greatest, to die for sins, to die, to die a death on a cross. That would be uh, awful. And so that's why they believe, I don't know if you know this, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Uh, they believe that Jesus was somehow caught up into heaven and that someone took his place on the cross because they can't believe a prophet would die that way. But Christians believe that the death of Jesus happened, that it was purposeful, that it matters because it was in our place. Uh, Jesus loved each one of us so much that he gave his life for ours. And that such an act isn't something shameful, it's something beautiful, something wonderful. Uh, it wasn't something that would dishonor a prophet of God. It was the greatest single act of love in all of human history. We don't have to wonder as a result if we've done enough good deeds to get in, because when it comes to having our life weighed in the scales, it won't be our life that's weighed. It will be the life of Jesus, and his life will be substituted for ours. When the books are opened, uh, everything we've done will be blotted out, and under our name will be everything that Christ did. Um, so, the fourth tension point uh, has to do with violence. And there's two very different views on violence. Um, there is a myth, and, and it is a myth, Alexis. It's an important myth to explode. That when it comes to violence and bloodshed, the Bible and the Quran are on equal footing. Uh, that there's no real difference between the violence committed in the name of Christ uh, and the violence committed in the name of the Taliban or Hamas. Uh, that there's no real difference between modern-day jihads and the Crusades, for example, of the Middle Ages. And that's just simply not true. Uh, the difference between Christianity and Islam when it comes to violence is, is actually profound. Uh, let's be, I mean, just begin with the Quran. It, it, you know, it, 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 people should read it. <laughs> really read it. And so many haven't. Uh, while most Muslims condemn uh, the violent acts of Islamic terrorists, the Quran itself unmistakably has some extraordinarily troublesome passages. Uh, there's no other way to put this. When it comes to justifying violence in the name of their faith, it's not like the terrorists are making it up. Uh, they're getting it from the Quran. For example, in the second chapter of the Quran, you don't have to get very far. In the second chapter of the Quran, there's a passage that teaches that whenever believers meet unbelievers, Muslims are encouraged to smite their neck. Uh, that not only appears in the second chapter, but in the ninth chapters and in the 47th chapter as well in the Quran. Uh, Islamic tradition also approves of violence against infidels and those who leave Islam as their native or chosen religion. That's also worthy of a death penalty. Uh, even to this day, you hear reports in the news of someone who converts to Christianity in an Islamic country, and they're often sentenced to death. Uh, fighting and killing are described as beloved activities. Um, in, in the, I mentioned the 47th chapter of the Quran, which is a, in a pivotal chapter. Um, if you die in the course, it says there, if you die in the course of, of this kind of jihad as a martyr, that's where it says you go straight to paradise. And then uh, there are quotes attributed directly to Muhammad. Um, and uh, where, where he says that the sword is the key to heaven and hell. And that a drop of blood that is shed in the cause of Allah is better than two months of fasting um, or prayer. And if you fall in battle, your sins are forgiven, instantly forgiven. When you have that kind of rhetoric coupled with that kind of reward, you're going to get some takers. 
you're going to get some takers. And that's what we've seen happen. Uh, all it takes for uh, this kind of jihad is for a Muslim leader to issue what is known as a fatwa. Uh, that's a legal ruling by a man of high uh, standing in Islam that someone is in violation of Islamic principles and should be punished by faithful Muslims. And there have been jihads called for by some leaders of Muslim nations against not only individuals, like the author Salman Rushdie, for example, comes to mind, but also entire nations, which is what Osama bin Laden did with the United States. Prior to 9-11, he issued a fatwa. And it was a very short fatwa. If, if you've read it, he just said, you know, the ruling to kill Americans, both civilian and military, is an individual duty for every Muslim who can do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. Uh, and Muslim extremists from Bangladesh signed it and from Egypt signed it and from Palestine signed it. Uh, and it was just simply titled Urging Fatwa Against Americans. Bin Laden, and again, uh, having someone, you know, again, it feels weird. To, like It doesn't seem like ancient history to me to have lived through it, but now it's been over, you know, two decades. And um, people in their 30s, were like maybe 10 at the time or something. And, and you forget that. But for me, um, I remember uh, even interviews where bin Laden was on ABC mm -hmm. and he, he told an ABC news producer he'd kill his own children. He'd kill his own children if it were necessary to hit American targets. So while Islam itself uh, implies peace, as Muslims will quickly tell you, the Quran itself does contain clarion calls to violence when Islam is, is, is opposed, the Quran states, fight, you know, let Allah punish them. Now, I know someone will say, well, what about Christianity? Isn't the Bible of a share of violence and punishment? The answer is absolutely yes, it does. It records punishments and sacrifices and wars and all kinds of things. And, and I would just refer people to the podcast we did recently on the bloody parts of the Bible, uh, where I walk through clear acts of bloodshed and violence in the Bible. Uh, and so I would, I would encourage people to look at that. Uh, where we also got into the um, all issues related to crusades and um, just how um, how that all played out. And I, I don't want to really go back over that again, um, because I think that that podcast, it needed a full podcast on it rather than me just kind of giving it a tipping of the hat. So let's move on to the to the to the final divide, which is over Jerusalem, which we also talked about in that podcast. But this is worth going back into because it's a it's a it's a fifth separate thing. Jerusalem is, is at the heart of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because both groups consider it their capital. Uh, it contains Judaism's holiest site, Islam's third holiest site, and what is arguably Christianity's most sacred site. For Jews, Jerusalem is the site of the temple that was built at the site where the great patriarch of the Old Testament, Abraham, was to sacrifice his son Isaac. It was destroyed, rebuilt, again, on the sacred ground of Abraham. The Western Wall or Wailing Wall, which I know we've both been to and many of our listeners may have as well or seen pictures of it, uh, is the surviving remnant of that second, tem uh, second temple. And it is Jude uh, Jerusalem's Judaism's most holy site. To Christians, Jerusalem is the site where the Last Supper took place and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ took place. And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem is said to be built on the site where those events took place. A recent archaeological work has gone a long way to actually to confirming that this it really is the site of Golgotha. And this really is the site of the tomb where Jesus was laid. Uh, that's what the word sepulcher means. 
uh, small room cut into rock where a dead person is laid. Archaeologists like to have fun arguments about that, but the evidence is, does not really debunk the tradition of that place being there. Uh, you can actually touch the rock of Golgotha, where the cross was. You can enter the tomb where Jesus was laid, if you're willing to wait in line. Uh, <laughs> but Jerusalem is also sacred to Muslims because Muhammad is said to have ascended to heaven from the stone that is now enclosed by the dome of the rock on Jerusalem's Temple Mount. Um, I got a look inside there once when I wasn't supposed to. I got chased away, but I was there for a minute and they didn't hurt me. Um, the mosque uh, there is considered the third holiest mosque in the Muslim world after the ones at Mecca and Medina. So why does all this cause hostility? This is important. So, so where's America in this? Why is there so much hostility then toward America? Um, the main reason is because America has historically supported Israel. The nation who was seen as keeping the area out of Muslim control. Thus, America, in the eyes of some Muslims, has declared war on Allah himself. But that's just part of what's going on to understand this, because this isn't just about a place. Uh, there's a wider cultural issue as well. This is about a goal. And it really does lie at the heart and soul of Islam. And this is not talked about much in the media. It is by those who study this from a theological or spiritual standpoint or historical standpoint. Um, Muslims believe that humans are born good, but are corrupted. How are they corrupted? They're corrupted by non-Islamic culture. That's the nature of corruption. Uh, this is very different than the Christian faith that sees all human beings as born in sin and thus facing the same sin struggle, uh, what we would talk about in terms of human depravity. Our problem isn't other cultures. It's tied to our hearts. For Muslims, the problem isn't sin as much as it is living in cultures and societies and under governments that do not follow Islamic law. So the way to battle corruption is to put everything and everyone under Islamic law. According to Islamic beliefs, the best hope of salvation for a Muslim is the elimination of non-Muslim influences and to advance Islam in a socio-political way. And America in the West is without a doubt the biggest cultural barrier to that happening on the planet. In fact, we've, we're seen as a decadent culture. And in fairness, we are a decadent culture. Uh, and they would say that almost everything about it is alien and needs to be replaced. That was how Islam initially spread throughout the world under Muhammad. It was under military expeditions or jihads. And now that element within Islam is flashing up all over the world. In fact, it's been said that Islam is the world's only major faith that can truly be defined as political. It's the only one. There's an interesting book on this that came out just before 9-11 uh, that I, I recommend to people who are really wanting to get into this culturally and understanding things. Uh, and, it's, and it's now being seen by many scholars as just prescient in, in its forecast. It was written by a Harvard professor named Samuel Huntington. And it was called The Clash of Civilizations. Uh, the thesis uh, at the time was that there are three great civilizations in, that are operating in our world. There is the Eastern religion, uh, which involves the Asian rim. There was Islam, which involved 30-some countries that were stretched between Indonesia in the east and, say, Nigeria in the west. And then there is Western liberal democracy, uh, as formed by the Judeo-Christian tradition. Those are the three great civilizations of our day. Huntington says 
or said at the time that the 21st century will be shaped by the clash of those civilizations and particularly between Islam and the West. And of course he's been proven right, but he went further when you, when you, when you actually read the book, read him carefully. He, he goes on to say something more that you, he predicted that if things don't change, he said, uh, Islam will win the day. Without a doubt, Islam will win. And the reason he said is simple. There are Muslims who will pick up the sword to do it. Christians won't. Hmm. Yeah, that takes a moment of reflection. Gosh, yeah. Um, again, we'll put that um, book in the show notes in case anybody wants to um, take a look at that. But um, for my for our last question, because we're yeah we're this has been a great conversation, but we want to honor our listeners' time as well. Um, what's interesting, I mean, the the points of divergence that you've just mentioned are significant, and they shouldn't be seen as anything less than that. But what is interesting is that there are the similarities that do exist between Christianity and Islam do give us a lot to work with. I would say in building bridges with our Muslim friends, neighbors, and coworkers. What do you think might be the key appeal of Christianity to a Muslim? There was a fascinating study uh, that uh, went from 1991 to 2007 that was conducted by Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, their School of Intercultural Studies, that surveyed 750 Muslims who had converted to Christianity and wanted to find out why did you convert? What was behind it? What was the appeal? To, to your point. Uh, they represented 50 ethnic groups from 30 different countries. It was a good cross-section. So they wanted to know what about Christianity was so appealing. And it really was everything that we've talked about today. It, it really was interesting. They found that the most cited reason for conversion to the Christian faith had to do with this the, the ideas of grace and, and love. Uh, for example, they said that Christians um, appeared to have loving marriages. Uh, where women were treated as equals rather than slaves. They said that the Quran had produced profound disillusionment because it accentuated God's punishment more than his love and the use of violence to impose Islamic laws. That, that Muslims can never be certain of their own forgiveness and salvation like the way Christians can. And they were also deeply attracted to the idea of, of God having unconditional love. The idea of love, of God's love coming to us free of charge and no strings attached. To many in the Muslim world, those were ideas that just fell like rain on parched souls, uh, very dry ground. And it makes sense uh, because it's what makes these two faiths so radically different from each other. That's so helpful to know whenever engaging in interfaith dialogues of we tend to start in the wrong places. And that's just such a wonderful place to start um, talking about topics like that. So thank you for that. Um, this has been a really rich conversation. and But before um, we sign off today, I want to let our listeners know of something kind of new that we've added. So um, Jim and I often get our conversation topics um, from a variety of places. Um, and one of those places is, is often from you guys, from listeners, either just sending us you know, an email or stopping us if you see us or something. But we, we kind of wanted to formalize the way that you could do that in case you don't live nearby or you didn't know how you could um, propose a topic of conversation or... Or even beyond that, if you've heard us talk about something on the podcast and you had some follow-up you know, questions of your own that we can maybe tackle in, in rapid-fire format in a future podcast episode, we'd love to hear that from you. So um, if you head over to churchandculture.org, 
you click on the podcast tab and you scroll down to the bottom, you'll find a place there where you can submit your questions. Um, if it's easier for you, we'll include that link in the show notes too, so you can find that. Um, but yeah, that's such a great way for you to be a part of the conversation um, in a unique way. And then, yeah, that's awesome for us to give us the... Um, to kind of let us know what we're going to talk about. So we hope you'll do that and take advantage of it. And we're, and yeah, we're, we're interested to see what you want to, want to hear about or learn about. So yeah, we hope you do that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great rest of your week and we hope you'll tune in again next time.